welcome to the Good Sports Podcast, diving deep into the world of sports and development. My name's David Terrace, and I'm joined by fellow Good Sports, Sarah Begg and Lee Booth. Hiya. Hello. Hello, or should I say, good day, as this is our Australasian episode. So we're delighted to be working with two great organisations within the sport and development sector, Sport and Dev and Connect Sport. Connect Sport is a not-for-profit media channel dedicated to increasing awareness and investment in the sport for development sector. It also hosts an online directory of sport for development organisations across the UK and Ireland and will soon be launching new sections on jobs, events and academic research focused on the sector. They are also working with the Sport Journalists Association and other trade bodies to build a diverse workforce of journalists which reflect and represent modern society. Sportanddev.org is an online platform dedicated to sport and development. It provides resources, tools and news about the sector, allowing users around the world to connect with a shared goal of promoting sport as a development tool. We're delighted to be working with these two great organisations, but we're very keen to also work with other organisations within the sector. So if you're interested in work with us, please do get in touch. Firstly, we're aware that we haven't been around for the last couple of weeks. Lee, where have you been? Once again, I've been back in Rwanda with Cricket Without Boundaries on one of our slightly different projects. So taking out a team of seven students from Leeds Trinity University. So these are all want to be sports teachers or sports coaches. Seven students, one member of staff and myself. So our usual type of project, but just made up of a slightly different project team. So three towns in Rwanda, cricket there is really starting to come along. So lots of encouraging signs. Got to watch a bit of the women's national team play at the new Gahanga Stadium. Big mention to Cricket Builds Hope, another organisation who've done fantastic work there building that stadium. So yeah, all in all, it was a great project. And that link with academia is quite apt. As uh, Sarah, you've got an interview with an organisation that's grown from a university. Uh, tell us a bit more about it. Yeah, that's right. I spoke with um, Emma and Richard from Sports United, which grew out of the University of South Australia. So they set up a sport for development organisation out of the university, using the students as a volunteering resource, making it part of their placements and so on. So a lot of parallels with what Lee was just describing there really interesting to see how it grew from that and how they're getting on now sort of as an independent organisation. So I'm joined here by Richard and Emma who are from Sports United. Guys could you introduce yourselves? No problem Sarah, Um, my name's Richard McGrath, I'm an academic at the University of South Australia in in Adelaide and I've been working with the what's now Sports United um, for six years. Um, my name's Emma. Um, I have been working at UniSA for a couple of years now as a project officer, but have recently taken on board the position as CEO of Sports United. Brilliant. Thanks, guys, so much for joining us. Really looking forward to hearing more about Sports United. Could you give us a little bit of background information about how the organisation was formed? Because I know it has some interesting origins. Yeah, it's um, it actually began... Six years ago, as I said, I've been involved with it for, for the six years. It actually began with one of our board members, um, Eduardo Rosso, who came to um, our university and wanted to look for a way to embed a sport for development program as part of both teaching and learning and research within the University of South Australia. I began working with him because we provided an opportunity for our students to actually both help develop the program but also implement programs going out to community, running programs and those sorts of things. 
So it began very small with a small number of students going out, running some programs in, in community. Over that period of time, it started to grow. It also grew by offering different types of programs. So we began mainly working with refugees or new migrants into some of our northern suburbs in Adelaide. But then it started to grow and started to provide opportunities for other organisations. We started working with schools and working with programs within the school curriculum. We also started working with other community groups, if you like, and started identifying with them what were some of the things that we could use sport to help them develop their communities. So we evolved through that. A lot of the programs were being delivered by students with us, if you like, as overseeing the program. One of the roles that I brought in working with Eduardo was around research and evaluation, and we can talk about that a bit later, because one of the things we identified was it wasn't just an idea of running programs, while that gave our students an opportunity to understand sports for development, we actually needed to develop an evidence base behind what we were doing to understand the impact of, of our program. We ran it for six years. At the end of last year, the university made a, a financial decision that they weren't going to continue to support the program internally. So we decided to, if you like, create a not-for-profit organisation. So over summer, um, myself and Emma have been working on creating a, 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 an organisation. We've just, if you like, started, but it was based on feedback we were getting from a number of our community partners last year was that they wanted us to continue doing the work we were doing so we decided that the best way to do that was to keep continuing it. So we've created this not-for-profit organisation. A number of the people involved on the board have had experience either working with the program when it was at UniSA. Eduardo Rosso, as I said, is on the board as well. And Emma, having been a project officer and having delivered a number of projects over the last few years for the, for the program, has continued on as, as a board member as well. So we've evolved over time from a very small initiative to, if you like, being a standalone initiative outside the university. How have you found that transition period? Do you think it's still going to allow you to continue to deliver as you were before? Or are you expecting to see some changes? Looking at what we were before, we are certainly continuing those programs that we were previously running, working in I guess, you know, as Richard said, with migrant refugee and cold communities here in South Australia, but also um, kids and adolescents with autism as well. Um, so those programs are certainly continuing and we've had some great feedback from those participants about wanting to continue those, but definitely expanding as well. Now that we are our own separate entity and um, I guess our own company, we are definitely looking at expanding and, and progressing into different areas of sport for development that may or may not have been done before. That sounds really interesting. I don't know if you're interested in sharing what those sort of new areas are. One of the things we're very keen on is exploring the potential of sport for development. So already this year, we've had a small team of, of students, physio students working with us to explore the potential of running some programs with older adults. What would that be focused on? How would we do that? Another area that we're ex exploring is delivering programs into regional or rural Australia. How do we do that? What are some of the issues that are going on that we could develop programs? One of the core things that we try to do with the program is that we don't presume to know what community needs. We go and work with community and actually talk to them about what are their issues, what are their needs how do we use sport to address their needs rather than us coming and saying, right, we're going to do this and this is 
how we do it. We don't have, a, if you like, a prepackaged how we do and what we do with our Sport for Development program. So there are two areas we're talking about. We're also talking about looking at programs with other um, disability groups. So at the moment, we, we work with kids within schools who have autism, but that doesn't mean that we can't work with other groups who might have disabilities outside of school or older people with disabilities. So we're exploring those areas as well. That sounds great. I was actually really interested. You were describing that sort of you have a needs analysis before you go in and deliver a program. What sort of approach do you have for that needs analysis? Do you have a sort of standardised approach or is it based on sort of the community that you're going into? We're very talkative people. And one of the things is, is that we go in and sit down and listen. Either an organisation has approached us or a school has approached us or somebody we know has talked to us about there's a community need and they're very interested in the work that we're doing. So we, we tend to sit down and just talk to them about what we do we want to find out what their need is, and then the development of the program is with the community. So we talk to them about what we can do, but we also want to know what they're able to do because part of what we're trying to do with the program as well is how do we empower communities. So the intention is, is we shouldn't have to be running the programs after a period of time. Communities should be able to run the program. So part of what we're trying to do is, is how do we both educate and teach people about sport for development how do we educate and teach people how to do sport for development and so by running programs with organizations they start to understand how they can do it themselves rather than relying on us to do it that sounds great i mean sustainability is always such a challenge isn't it in the past you were saying how there were students who were sort of delivering those programs are you continuing to engage with students as your sort of workforce or are you looking at different ways to do that yeah, absolutely. We get a lot of students on board across, I guess, the university. But then also we, we also turn to a lot of community volunteers as well. Um, and generally, depending on where we where we run these programs, there will be people from within that community that want to give back and they want to help out. But we take on board students from all disciplines. They could be studying health degrees. They could be studying business degrees, marketing, photography, journalism. Within our programs, there is a lot of opportunity for a lot of different aspects to be involved. So we do take on both sort of arms or aspects of uh, manpower to get these programs off the ground. That sort of multidisciplinary approach, I guess, means that you're creating a lot of people who or empowering a lot of students to understand sport for development and potentially go on to practice it once they graduate. Have you found any examples of people who've continued? The classic example is Emma herself. Emma, <laughs> Emma actually started um, as a volunteer through her as, as a student. She began with an opportunity to be involved in sport for development. She learnt about it by going out to programs and running some of the sport programs. What she then was able to start to do was go, all right, well, what else can I do within this space? We had an, a, an opportunity for her to apply as a paid in, a project officer part-time. She took on that role. She's then built an understanding of not only how to deliver programs, but what's required behind the scenes to make these, to, to network, to work with communities, all of those sorts of other skills that are required in sports for development, not just how to go out and work with whichever community group on the ground using sport for development. We've had other students also come in and, and want to continue with the program as volunteers even after they're finished with their university degree. So they want to still be involved with us 
in whatever capacity they can. One of the things we're also talking about as an organization, when, when you were asking before, you know, what is it having become, if you like, an independent organization? One of the things we're looking at is what are some of the income streams we can start to create so we can start to employ people to be able to take on some of these roles? Can we employ people with disabilities to take on delivering some of these programs? So it's not about us delivering everything. Can we look at ways to make this long-term and sustainable, but also create career paths or career opportunities for people to learn about how to do this? Yeah, and I guess the challenge then always is funding things, which I think is linked nicely to the discussions we've had about your evaluation. If you could talk a little bit for our, our listeners about what the evaluation looks like in your in your programs, and then we can maybe address how that links into finding funding. One of the things, as I said, because we began um, as a project or an initiative within the university, we identified very early on that part of the pillars of what we wanted to do within the, the Sport for Development program was research and evaluation. Not only as academics and research is part of our jobs, but also to feed back into the program so we can understand how the program is working, whether it's having in, impact. We were looking at, if you like, this, this business idea about continuous improvement. How do we understand what we're doing how we're doing it, what's working and what's not working, and how do we improve that as we're going along. So not only have we focused on collecting information from our participants, those who are actually involved, but we've also always included opportunities for our volunteers to provide feedback. We're always interested in in our um, induction processes, you know, how well we've done with that. Has it supported them to understand what they're doing out in the field? Some of the work we've also done is we go out and look at the, if you like, the rippling out effect. A number of our programs have involved, say, migrants or refugee communities. Parents become involved, so we're very interested in, in the impact it's had for the parents. So we get feedback from the parents. Or if we're working with schools or we're working with community organisations, we're interested in them as stakeholders, what's worked for them, what hasn't worked for them. So we're continuously looking at building into all of our programs the opportunity to get feedback from the beginning through to the end of our programs and understand what's worked, what hasn't worked, and how do we improve what we're doing. So it's the, it, it's part of what we do. That sort of question of feedback is really critical, isn't it? I think a lot of the organisations, certainly I'm involved with a very small sport and development organisation. My role is head of monitoring and evaluation, but the capacity to ask lots and lots of questions can be quite limited. I was interested to know if you thought there were any sort of key questions that maybe smaller sport and development organisations should be asking of themselves and their programmes to get facilitate that feedback. Yeah, I think we, we, we've worked with this over a period of time. Again, it's part of it is, is sometimes it's just what's worked, what hasn't worked, how could we improve? It, it doesn't need to be too much more than that, particularly if you develop a good rapport with your participants or your volunteers or your stakeholders. They're, they're quite open. And because, as I said, we start the process by talking with, with the organisations or the groups that we're going to be working with. So we develop a really good rapport with, our, with the people we're working with. So by simply coming in and asking, can you tell us what's worked? What, what, how has this worked for you? Um, what are some of the benefits you've got out of it? What could, what didn't work? We're very keen on understanding what isn't working as well because we know that we can always improve a program. And then finally, you know, 
any anything else that we can make this better. We're open to getting that feedback and understanding how it's working. One of the other things I think, again, it's a uniqueness of our program. And as Emma said, we work, we have students working with us. Well, some of the students have been involved in the research side of it, the evaluation side. So they can help us collect data, collate data, analyze data. We know many sports for development projects and initiatives, all of their staff are involved in delivering the program. They don't have a lot of uh, space or scope or resources to do some of this other work that they'd love to do, but they don't have the capacity to do. Because of the way we've set up, we've actually, our student pool doesn't just have to be running programs. As Emma said, they could be, you know, part of social media or they could be part of helping us develop programs or researching about programs or the evaluation side of it. So Emma just completed her honours. Her honours was pretty much an evaluation of the program that we were doing around um, young people with autism or students with autism running a program at the school. Her focus was on getting feedback from the teachers. What impact did it have, this program have, on the students' behaviour in the classroom? So we were very interested in seeing whether the students were transferring any of the skills that they were learning and some of the social skills that they were learning in the Sport for Development program into the classroom. So I suppose for organisations that maybe don't have that relationship with the university at the moment, a useful thing to look into would be to see if there are universities that are based near where they're delivering programmes and if there are students who are interested in doing that as their, like you say, their honours dissertation, their capstone project, whatever it looks like. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a number of our volunteers are placement students that come from within the university. So, you know, if it's a placement student that has to complete 120 hours or 10 hours or 50 hours, whatever it happens to be, it's always really great to get them on board because they have to complete a number of man hours, absolutely. But we get them engaged, they participate, and they just fall in love with what we do. Not even that, like you mentioned, with, with honours students as well. It's about getting them involved and, and Richard said, helping us to sort of see what we can do and see where we can take the programs. I think teaming up with a university or just, you know, seeking a university's help in this sort of capacity is definitely worthwhile because you can get your volunteers and your help, but then you can also get help with that evaluation output as well. So it's great. Um, it's, a, it's a really good relationship if you can make that work. Have you guys evaluated the impact on, on the students in terms of what they've got out of their involvement in Sports United? Yeah, I mean, very early on, one of the things we were doing when we started working within schools was was to understand what, what students got out of it. Uh, one of our programs, the Healthy Sports Program, is, is, is more geared towards a health education approach. And so one of the things we did last year, I had another honours student working with me on this, was we did a bit of a, a pre and post feedback, if you like, from students where at the beginning, before the program started, we wanted to understand what was the students' knowledge around things like sleep and nutrition and physical activity and all those sorts of things. And at the end of the program, we ran this healthy sports program for six weeks. At the end of it, we basically used the same tool, same way of getting feedback from the students to understand, did they did they learn anything from the program? And so by doing that, we were able to see, well, did the program have any impact on their learning? In other programs, we've gone out and we've we've done observations, and uh, particularly with with children with autism, communication is an issue. So one of the things we've been doing is we're developing a, a an observational tool, so we can actually observe the children's behaviour 
over time. And we can record that and we can see whether the behavior changes. But we can also get feedback from their parents in terms of, well, how are they behaving at home? So we, we look at different ways of collecting data depending on the group that we're, we're working with, their age group what we're trying to achieve with the Sport for Development program. We don't sort of have a one-size-fits-all model, if you like, around evaluation. It's really built on the program. And what are the, from an academic point of view, what is the research question? What are we trying to answer? Presumably, you also see changes in your sort of student coaches as well. Yeah, that, and that, very again, very early on, getting feedback from our from our volunteers, one of the things we were keen on was what did they get out of it? What was the benefit for their participation? As Emma said, a number of them do it as part of their placement, part of their studies. They have to do X amount of hours. But we were very interested in getting some of their feedback around what they personally got out of it. And it was it's always been very interesting to see how they personally see, you know, things like, they, they develop an awareness. So, for example, we have students that might work with the, the children with autism. They've never worked with a child with a disability at all. They've never come across anybody with autism. And what they come away with is a, is a deep level of awareness of both the diversity of autism, it's not just one thing, and also the capacity of these children to actually participate because a lot of young students who come into university have a particular way of seeing the world. When you take them out there and you know, they, they become involved with migrants or refugees or children with autism. It actually opens up their world understanding. And they actually, when they reflect upon that, they actually see that as a benefit to themselves personally, but also professionally where they go. It, it helps them understand that they're going to be working with many different people and how they need to be able to work with people, not just be the expert and tell people what to do. Emma, maybe you can uh, give us a bit of an account of your experience of that process. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as Richard mentioned before, when I first, I guess, started off in this program or, you know, in the early days, I was a second year university student, sort of came into this, I guess, area of sport for development, not really knowing, I guess, what it was, but having the understanding that it was about using sport as a tool for development. And I think for me, what I learned very early on when I started off on this journey was how important it is to be able to work with a number of different population groups. And as an undergraduate student, I think for me, I saw the benefits in, and as Richard mentioned, was professionally. How can this help me in my future? Back then, I didn't know that I'd be working in this field, so it's turned out really, really well. But just even in general, and it was more just a case of, for me, when you speak to someone that has autism, and then you speak to someone who is, you know, maybe of migrant refugee background, they're two completely different population groups. And to be able to work out early in your career how to work within those population groups and how your communication varies across those two different population groups is always so important. And that was, I guess, one of the massive things that I learned coming through was just that difference of working across different groups and certainly one of the reasons why a lot of our placement students come through now and something that we do get out of our evaluations, and that is something that they pick up on. They pick up on the fact that they've had this opportunity to work with different population groups and learn different skills that they need when working with those population groups. And I think that's a massive thing. That's really important. And certainly our evaluation techniques have allowed us to really understand that, gauge that idea of what placement students want 
and then work with that to work with them to be able to progress their skills for their future. You're probably getting people coming in from more traditional coaching backgrounds. Do you find there's ever a kind of conflict between wanting to develop the sort of sport end of things versus the sort of social end of programs? Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, we, we we do get some students who you know come out of sport and they may 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 themselves be athletes, you know, and we do have some university students who are on the pathway to elite, being an elite athlete. So they've they've been through, if you like, that traditional sport development model. What they find is is that partly they they engage with us because they want to understand what sport for development is. One of the things that they understand and they begin to understand is is that the power of sport for development and that you don't necessarily need to do sport to be an athlete. Yes, there's some of the coaching techniques and how you do that, but we also have students who have never participated in sport at all. In fact, they've never wanted to participate in sport. But when they look at this, they go, well, it's not about sport. And so what ends up happening is, is we have some of our volunteers who are into sport and, you know, they're, they're coaches or they're athletes themselves, but then we have others who have never engaged with sport at all and never had an interest in it and they actually come together and they start learning from each other as well. And so there's those transferable skills across each other. And in many ways, they complement each other when they go out there. So those with coaching backgrounds understand, if you like, how to run drills and do those sorts of things. So non-sporting people learn that. But then they also learn from from others is that, well, it's not about the drill. It's not about learning how to kick the ball, throw the ball, catch the ball, whatever it is. It's about the engagement within the activity. And so it's their ability to do those sorts of things. So they sort of bring it together, if you like. That's really interesting, isn't it? The sort of partnership approach allowing you to tackle both sides of, of the challenge of trying to deliver sport and development, because it can be, certainly my experience of it, quite challenging to get coaches to think as agents of development or people with a development mindset to think as coaches so if you can bring people with both skills into the into the space that's that's really innovative and useful way of of approaching the problem thank you so much guys um i think we'll probably have to wrap up relatively soon so i'm just going to ask you a few of our closing questions if that's all right so um the first question is what does the sport and development sphere look like in australia we're trying to get a sense of how it looks in different parts of the world it is interesting what we find is is that we have your traditional sporting organizations doing what they call sport for development they they take their sport and go out and work with communities and so they they refer to it as sport for development there are some not-for-profit organizations for example um, organizations like red cross or small organizations working with say homeless people or this sort of stuff there's an organization here in adelaide called the big issue actually it's in australia and they, they run a um a street soccer program we've got multicultural organizations they might run them in schools or they might run them in community groups so it's 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 all over the place but it's not we don't all talk to each other we also do our own thing one of the difficulties can be is is looking for partners and how do we work in that fashion that can be a bit difficult also the our federal government does through um through our department of foreign affairs actually uses sport organizations to go out into the Pacific regions to run some sport for development programs in some of the Pacific islands as well. So rugby will go out and run some in the you know Fiji and these sorts of places as well. But again, it's very much located within the big sport organisations and they deliver it. 
So for you, what what should sport for development look like in, in Australia or indeed globally? We touched on this before about that sustainability and funding. One of the one of the difficulties is is sport for development relies a lot on grant funding or charity to be able to survive. Its sustainability is always at risk. One of the other things that, and we're trying to we're trying to develop this, as you can see, you know, working with students and that is that educative side to it. One of the things we we're exploring is our ability to actually work with anybody around learning what sport for development is. And it's not about us necessarily delivering it, but it's making sport development sustainable as a model of doing sport rather than sport as for elite pathways and and going to sports clubs and that. Not everybody wants that. Some kids and some adults want to just play. But the way it's structured is that, well, you have to join a club or you have to go to the local recreation centre or where it happens to be to be able to do it. We're a bit of a third option from all that and saying, look, if you just want to come out and kick a ball, have a bit of a play, we'll, we'll provide the, the environment for that to happen. The struggle becomes for us, well, then how do we do that within funding frameworks and that? So it's, you know, how do we find sponsors and all that? So that's the challenge for us as well. And we haven't got the, the, the simple formula to have solved that yet. We're working on that one. But that's, that's both how we see it and where we think sport for development should go is, is really educating the population, what is sport for development and how do we do it? So I'll just finish off on the last question here, which is for both of you, what's been your proudest moment in sport for development? That is such a hard question to answer because I think in this field of work, there are so many proud moments. I think for me specifically, it'd be working with our autism population groups and just seeing their progress, you know, from one week not being able to catch a ball to the next week catching a ball and then shooting a goal. I think they're always the proudest moments for me. I think within this company structure that we've now set up, I think my proudest moment would be actually setting up and getting this off the ground and making this work. So, yeah, that's going to be my proudest moment, I think. Yeah, for me, I'm always proud of both our volunteers and, in many cases, the students who I work with as well in seeing them realise their own potential as future professionals and understanding how sport for development can play a role in their lives and their careers. I think for me, using sport for development as a a way to awaken potential for people to be able to do that, whether it's having teachers in schools realise that sport for development isn't about PE and, and kids needing to do X amount of PE at school. It's about understanding how to work with people and develop it. So I'm always proud when I see our community partners, our our students come to that realisation. Richard and Emma from Sports United, thank you so much for joining us and hopefully we will be in touch again soon. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. So that was Richard and Emma. I think the thing that was most exciting for me was the opportunities that being in a university context can potentially present but I also think there's quite a lot of challenges with that and potentially that might explain why these guys have gone away from the university setup and foremost amongst those I think is how do we legitimise sport and development as a sort of research goal or a research area I think at the moment we're still kind of in this in-between stage where it's not quite sports coaching and it's not quite 
international development and we don't really have a space where that research can go into, which can make it difficult for universities to really get on board with because there's no sort of funding around that. Dave, was there anything that particularly stuck out for you? Yeah, I guess two things. So I actually think them coming from an ac- academic background was a really positive thing in terms of them embedded monitoring evaluation right from the start and it not becoming an afterthought. So actually they were thinking about how they could measure the impact, which is often something, certainly in my experience from projects where it's like we have an idea and then how are we going to measure it? Actually, they were thinking about how they measure it before they did the idea, which I think can only be a positive and, and linking up better uh, academia and practice, I think, is absolutely key. And um, and secondly, I was really impressed by their sort of needs-led approach. So they were very open with who they work with and they were very open with how they work with organisations as well. So they went and really listened to the needs of that population and, and kind of adapted their their model. I guess there's obviously challenges with that in terms of um, you know scaling up and having a consistent model. But at, at their stage, which is still feels quite a young organisation, then just their approach of going out and listening was was really great and really refreshing. So, you know, two you know really positive points for me. It's really great to hear them speak about their work in, in Australia, which is obviously a long way from where we were. Really, I think that's really interesting what you've said about sort of scalability of their needs analysis. I guess you'd say because you're quite right. The conversational side of it feels really refreshing. But on the flip side, is that something that you can continue to do? Do you need the right people in place to do that every time? No, absolutely. And I guess one other thing that struck me in the interview as well was just talking about the structure of sport in Australia. So they kind of talked around the formal leagues versus just playing you know, in parks and green spaces and just the benefit of just playing has um, for especially kind of marginalised communities. And that's come up in, a, in another article as well, which is from The Conversation, which is kind of an online medium in Australia. And it's, it's an article called Pushing Casual Sports to the Margins Threatens Cities' Social Cohesion. And it's actually written by more urban planners than sport and development practitioners. And really it's saying that the kind of structuralization of sport and pathways and official leagues and, and paying for places is really threatening actually the kind of social fabric and also welcoming different uh, people into the city as well. So a lot of new migrants or refugees might casually play pickup games like basketball or street soccer as a way of integrating. And actually organizations who then charge to play in formal leagues are kind of threatening this kind of social integration in a, in a kind of natural way so it kind of begs the question for us should it all be about structured sport or actually does this casual sport really lend itself well should the two mix or should there be a kind of mix of that activities have you guys got any kind of thoughts on that I have some experience certainly of seeing programs that are designed to be sort of street versions of games um, so street cricket street soccer that kind of thing where they're being facilitated by you know local governing bodies for the sports and what has always interested me about those is that they still have to book those spaces in order to facilitate those sessions so governing bodies are trying in a lot of ways to to embrace that sort of concept of street sports use it to leverage integration opportunities that kind of thing but nevertheless they're still having to engage with this whole thing of the sort of privatization of space I guess. Yeah, and by 
by putting that structure around something that is by its kind of very nature unstructured. So in the article, it mentions, for example, an informal Sydney kind of Nepalese soccer club that just part like trains in the park and it's people just literally turning up if they want, but they know it happens at a certain time. By putting structure around that, does does it put people off, do you think, um, in your experience of working in that kind of street environment? Yeah, I think it does because it takes away ownership from the people who set it up in the first place. It's a real catch-22, I think. As soon as you label something street sport and you get involved as a governing body or an organisation running it, you add that structure. Key would be to somehow, it has to be as, as hands-off approach as you can get it so these things develop organically and people do take ownership. But how you do that without any structure, I guess, is, is a really difficult one and would be an interesting one for some research, I think. So I think there's two things that here. There's one about councils needing to start charging for these spaces, which traditionally have been used for free, so parks and things like that. And um, certainly mentions in the article, and I've had it here with uh, Royal Parks charging for softball, for example. And then the other thing is that national governing bodies see uh, these kind of casual games as, I guess, a talent pathway and trying to get people into the system, where whereas actually people just kind of want to play and they talk in the article about a slow rhythm or a natural rhythm of these games and people might watch for a couple of weeks and then join in or they might turn up every couple of weeks but it's much more than just the football or cricket or whatever it's it's about social integration really and um, I think for me what this what this shows is that if we try and force something it loses that um, that meaning I think there's a proven pathway that can exist from these street games into elite sport. And I think the problem with that is that obviously that leads governing bodies to be looking at those too intensely. So I think it would be a case of everybody trying to just step back and let ta- talent develop naturally. And that's, I think, is, is what we're particularly bad at. So yeah, it's, it's a really interesting topic. And uh, we've put the article on our blog, which you can find on the website. Hi, I'm Charlie Gamble, the CEO of Tackle Africa, and you're listening to the Good Sports Podcast. Okay, so we've got our quiz now. It's got an Australasian theme, and the first question is about the sports that the Australian government has invested in in the Pacific Islands. There are 12 sports in total. I want you to name them all. The first one not to get one right concedes the three points, and you take it in turns. Who wants to go first? So, would you like to go first? Sure, why not? Cool. Okay, crack on. So I'm going to start with the obvious one for us, cricket. Correct. Yeah, very easy. I'm going to go football. Football is correct. I'm going to go netball. Correct. Rugby union. Correct. Going to go for its buddy, rugby league. Correct. I'm going to go for tennis. Tennis is incorrect, I'm afraid. Oh, come on. You're very close. There is table tennis, but no tennis, I'm afraid. How, how, How does that even make sense when they have a tennis major? Who would put table tennis ahead of that? Uh, the Australian government, by the sounds of it. They do have a project in Fiji to a party and Vanuatu. So the full list is Australian League football, athletics, badminton, basketball, cricket, football, netball, rugby league, rugby union, swimming, table tennis and volleyball. Um, so quite a mixed portfolio there. Yeah, swimming was an obvious one. Okay, so three points to Sarah. So the next question, I want you to buzz in. So these are the names of four programmes, again, funded by the Australian government, but I want you to name which sport they cover. Okay? Okay. Okay. So the first one is Shuttle Time Nepal. Buzz. Lee. Badminton. Badminton is correct. Yes. Project to build resilience in children, support inclusion, peace building and health. So the next one is Diamonds in the Rough. Buzz. Sarah. 
Baseball. Baseball is correct. The clue oh, was the shot. diamonds. So that's the gender empowerment and engagement project of women and men in uh, domestic violence in Indonesia. Now, the next one, in fact, the next two are pretty tricky. So next one is Just Play India. Buzz. Lee. If it's India, it has to be cricket. It does not, ah. I'm afraid. Sarah? Football. Football is correct. Oh, wild stab in the dark. <laughs> I thought, if in doubt, go with football. Yeah, fair. Government participation, health, gender, equality, education, water and sanitation project in India. And the final one is simply mum's a hero. Buzz. Seems Correct. to be all the rage at the moment. I'm going to go for table tennis. <laughs> Good guess. I'm afraid that is incorrect, Sarah. Netball? Close. It is basketball in East Timor. Uh, so I'm surprised that neither of you got that. Hotbed um, of basketball there in East Timor. <laughs> it's a health and nutrition programme for older women and families through basketball. Cool. Okay, so the score is 5-1. Lee, see if you can get back in the game with this. It's a game of higher or lower. I'm going to start you at 50% and then you're going to go after off the last percentage. Okay? Okay. So, so these are all percentages from the Sport New Zealand Value of Sport Report. And Lee, as you're behind, you can go first. Each person's got one chance. And after that, it's the other person's victory. So starting at 50%. A lot, lot of pressure in the quiz today, David. Not a lot of wiggle room. No, no. <laughs> I like those high stakes yeah. situations. Well, exactly. Yeah, you've got to keep it keep it competitive. Okay, so starting at 50%, higher or lower, what percentage of New Zealanders believe being active helps them to be physically fit and healthy, Lee? Got to be higher than 50%. That is correct. It's 92%. Sarah, higher or lower than 92%. What percentage of New Zealanders believe essential life skills are learned through playing sport? Uh, I'm going to guess slightly lower. That is correct. 84%. You're still both in the game. So 84% Lee. What percentage of New Zealanders believe high performance sport contributes to our national pride and identity? Oh, that is a tricky one. Very proud of the rugby union team. But I'm still going to guess lower. It is lower. It is 83%. <laughs> it scrapes through. So with that in mind, Sarah, 83%. What percentage believe sports and physical activity bring people together and create a sense of belonging? I'm going to guess slightly lower. I'm afraid that is wrong, Sarah. Oh. That is the quiz over there. So the final score was 5-4 to Sarah. So congratulations. You do indeed win the quiz. Okay. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I've got a tiebreaker if you fancy it. Of course. How many millions of Aussie dollars did the Australian government invest in their Pacific Sports Partnership Programme from 2015 to 2017? 30 million. 30 million, Lee. Big sports fans, I'm going to go a bit higher than that. I'm going to go 46 million. Well, the quiz is most definitely Sarah's this episode. Yes. She was nearly bang on. It was 29 million. Pretty considerable. Sounds suspiciously close to me, that, though. Good guess. Sir. Good guess. Sir. Well, someone's done their research, clearly. Yeah, that's true. So that was our Australasian quiz. Congratulations to Sarah for winning it. You can find all the information about the quiz and the rest of the episode on our blog. As usual, we'd love you to get in touch with questions, comments and thoughts. You can do that via Twitter at Good Sportscast. 
or you can drop us an email info at goodsportscast.org.uk or visit the blog at goodsportscast.org.uk and don't forget to follow Sport and Dev and Connect Sport as well. They are at Connect Sport and at Sport and Dev. Once again, thank you very much for listening and it's a goodbye from the good sports. Bye. Bye.